Okay. I'm Ed Nersessian, director of the center. Uh, welcome to our program today, which was uh, proposed and organized by Professor Chris Impey. Professor Chris Impey is a university distinguished professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona. He has over 220 ref refereed publications on observational cosmology, galaxies, and quasars, and he research, his, his research has been supported by $20 million in NASA and NSF grants. He has won 11 teaching awards and has taught three online classes with over 350,000 enrolled and five million minutes of video lectures watched. Chris Impey is a past vice president of the American Astronomical Society and he has won its career education prize. He's also been NSF distinguished teaching scholar, Carnegie Council's Arizona Professor of the Year and the Howard Hughes Medical Institute professor. He has written 90 popular articles in cosmology, astrobiology, and education, two textbooks, a novel called Shadow World, and nine popular science books, The Living Cosmos, How It Ends, Talking About Life, How It Began, Dreams of Other Worlds, Humble Before the Void, Beyond the Future of Space Travel, Einstein's Monsters, The Life and Times of Black Holes, and an upcoming book on exoplanets, Worlds Without End. He was the first person who participated at our first roundtable at the Helix in 2012, and uh, it was about the beginning, and so now he's here again. Chris? Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Ed. Morning. Um, so uh, I'm delighted to be here and to Ed for organizing these. I I got from him the eye-watering number of 200 around that he's of these that he's done. If you can imagine that, on all manner of topics, all interesting. Um, so I'm delighted to have been able to invite and then come this illustrious group here. Uh, we're going to do a little polling, but let me introduce them. And these are. This is a very truncated introduction, just doesn't take too long. These are very illustrious people with uh, a lot more information you can read online, maybe their Wikipedia articles even, if we trust Wikipedia anymore. Um, so um, starting here, Lisa Kaltenegger is a founding director of the Carl Sagan Institute to search for life in the cosmos at Cornell. And, and, and anything named after Carl Sagan is just like, you know, inestimably high in the esteem of any astronomer. Um, she's been named a young innovator by Smithsonian and Time magazine. She's won many international honors. Uh, I'm a little jealous. She's got an asteroid named after her. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to angle for that. I don't know quite what the inside track on getting an asteroid is, but I'm, um, I'd like some tips. And, and if you get time with her, you can ask her about what it, what it might be like to surf on water worlds. Um, I'll, I'll hop around. Dave Kipping is uh, director of the Cool Worlds Lab at Columbia University, and he's a generally cool guy, of course. <laughs> he's pioneered the search for exomoons, and I hope we get to talk about that, and found the first two candidates, and that's the pretty much the bleeding edge of looking at uh, exoplanets and their smaller uh, progeny. Um, he's also an expert on technosignatures, another topic I hope we get to, uh, looking for spectral signatures of technology and not just microbial life. 
on exoplanets. Uh, and his research ethos apparently is no idea is too crazy. So we'll hold you to that. <laughs> uh, Rebecca Oppenheimer is a professor of astrophysics and curator at the American Museum of Natural History, just up the road. Um, she holds three patents. I'm a little jealous of that, too. And uh, it's fine. Uh, yet, exactly, yes. And co-discovered the first brown dwarf. And her optics lab is, is really pushing the envelope for characterizing exoplanets with the abilities to detect planets smaller than the Earth orbiting uh, cool stars. So that's, we've got bleeding edge technology, theory, and observation here in the room. Um, Sarah Seeger is a professor of physics, planetary science, aeronautics, and astronautics. Don't you want to add a couple to that? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe chemistry one day. I hope you don't have the teaching load of four <laughs> departments or three departments. No, that's okay. It's at MIT. Um, she's a member of the National Academy of Science, a MacArthur Fellow, and has many international awards, including being an officer of the Order of Canada, um, which is their highest civilian honor. And I just imagine it has some incredible regalia that goes with that. But it happened during the pandemic, so we didn't get <laughs> oh. unfortunately. So I want to see a picture online of that ceremony. Um, and she's deputy science director for the NASA test mission, which is you know successor to Kepler as the sort of cutting edge exoplanet search mission. Um, and, and we'll talk about it, I think, but, but anytime you can ask her about why star shades are really important. Um, so these are our people, and we're gonna do a little uh, experiential learning here. And it's low tech, the people online have a Google form, people in the room, we're gonna do the low tech style. You know, because when the apocalypse happens and we lose all our apps and the internet, I still wanna be able to teach and do things, so we'll use paper. So we're just going to ask three simple questions just to set the scene to where you're thinking about this subject is. Um, so this is like origami 101. You just have to figure out what to do with this. But basically, fold it in half and fold it in half again. And then the panel is exempt from this, of course, because they're a biased sample. Um, and then based on the question, you know, you just hold up pointing forward your answer to each question. The online people are using a Google form so we get the data. Um, so we'll start with the first one about the existence of any form, life of any kind beyond Earth. Just what do you think about that? Is it A, B, C, or D? So I'll give you a minute to organize your folds and then when you're ready, just I want to see what. Knows how they're defined. How over there. Yeah. It's over oh, there. Too. So we'll just see what you think, okay? It's, it's a lot of A, a lot of A, a little bit of the other three, okay? Um, so we'll go to the next question, which is very similar. But can we scroll? I don't know who has control of the slides. It's a good question. Yeah, I don't have control of the slides. Is the life in the... Uh, uh -huh. No, that, that would, it's a very good suggestion, but it would take our entire time. So we'll, we'll, we'll loop back to that. We won't ignore it. Um, so the second question is really only different in one word. It's the issue of intelligent life beyond Earth, something we might be interested in. Um, same question, same method. 
And uh, now it's a little more equivocal. There's probably, yes, so this is an interesting difference. We'll see what the online numbers are because I think they're more online than in the room. So it's uh, less certain here, some probabilities. And, and then the last question is, uh, if life beyond Earth is found for the first time, what will it be? Quite interesting. And these are not all mutually exclusive, as you can <laughs> imagine. So quite interesting. Front page news for a little while. Profound for astronomy and biology or scientific event of this. Yeah. Oh, okay. All, all of the above. We got one all of the above. So that's, that's pretty emphatic majority opinion that it's the scientific discovery of the century. And I agree, that's fine. You're not astrobiologist, but you obviously think this subject is important. And if it does happen, you know, Nobel Prize will be awarded. Um, someone in this room maybe. And not me, I'm a cosmologist. I wouldn't <laughs> know an exoplanet unless it bit me in the ass. Pardon my French. <laughs> and not any of you, I think. But um, so we're here to talk about the state of uh, the search for life in the universe, which is at an interesting phase. So I'll just start, just a quick go round, and you don't have to be held to what you say, particularly because we'll unpack it all at leisure. Um, if you were gonna just hazard a guess of a time frame uh, and a method by which the first life beyond Earth will be found, what would you say, Lisa? I would say catching the light of a planet with a telescope like the James Webb Space Telescope is our first ever opportunity to do so. So if life's everywhere it can be, we have a shot. If it's not, we need to build a bigger telescope. But I'm quite hopeful, but I'm very positive on this, that we get the first whiff of something really interesting within the next five to 10 years, because we have to add up the data. Okay, Rebecca? I guess I would say um, on a similar time scale, 10, 20 years. Uh, oh, you, du you doubled it, actually. Well, okay. But that's fine. <laughs> no, that, that's right. That's the same. I mean, it's, it matters personally, I suppose. But <laughs> um, my sense is that this might happen uh, in a more dramatic and unpredictable way than we can know at the moment. And in fact, it may be within our own solar system. And perhaps we'll come back to that. But Okay, good. Yes, we will. Dave? Um, I think the question... Just to speculate like this is um, something I'm going to push back a little bit <laughs> against because I think, to be honest, none of us really know. And uh, when I'm talking to the public, you know, I'm putting on my scientist hat, and it's one thing to talk to my friend or you know over a couple of beers and, and speculate wildly about life in the universe. But um, if I'm talking as uh, a representative of the community, then as a scientist, I have to say I have no evidence as to whether there's life out there. So I, to me, on that voting card, I want to see I don't know. That, that should be, for me, mm. the answer we give. And I don't want to assume whether it's JWST or whether it's technosignatures or something else, because I don't want to close my mind to what might end up being, because as Rebecca said, it could be a, a total surprise the way we detect it, so, and if we detect it at all. So I'm just, I try to remain very agnostic about this question and which paths will lead to the right answer. Okay, absolutely. Oh, since yeah. I'm last, I will agree with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely think we're going to find something, but we're not going to know what it is. We're, it's going to be very hard to be sure of it. 
So I'll, if I had one single vote, I would put it on our solar system and I would put that to sample return. It's kind of a new buzzword. NASA wants to bring rocks back from Mars. We want to bring parts of Venus clouds back. Even people talk about even more complicated destinations. But like to test something in our laboratory with tools we have that are incredibly sensitive is probably our best bet for a definitive detection. But whether life is there or not, of course, is not up to us. Right. Okay, well, let, let's go with that because we're going to have plenty of time for exoplanets, but two of you mentioned the solar system. Fine, it's our backyard. Um, <laughs> Mars is slightly habitable, maybe, um, and there are other places. So let's drill into that a little more. I Many people in the audience probably remember the, um, the fervor over the Allen Hills meteorite and the press conference with Bill Clinton and then the sort of disappointment that set in slowly and some people just... Right, didn't. but let's not forget it could definitively be shown to be incorrect. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you think about an exoplanet, think about the sky at night and the stars you can see. They're just points of light. And so it's much harder to say one way or the other. So that's why I'm voting for sample return. Right. So I, I actually like the idea. I've always imagined it would be wonderful if we put... Um, something on Europa or Enceladus, these icy moons in the outer solar system melt down into the ocean. You turn on the camera and there's a fish looking back at you. <laughs> and then you can, you know, get Elon Musk to have some billion dollar sushi and, you know, go out there and bring it back. <laughs> now that would be definitive. If you saw fish or even, you know, whatever, something swimming around, I don't think anyone would have a, you know, a question. Of course, they would say it was fabricated in Hollywood, but, you know... <laughs> And there is breakthrough Enceladus. I haven't followed the news on that. It, it got, what, $100 million from Yuri Milner, yeah. I suppose, and, uh, you know. No, no. Not that much? No. There was a study. Just to a study. Like, you know, if one could do it for $100 million, then this billionaire would consider sending a mission to fly through the plumes, like there's right. like a geyser, and to like see if there was any sign of a byproduct of life or anything. But it, you can't do it for 100 million. That sounds like a lot, but everything in space, think about it, like costs 100 times more than on the ground, yeah. at least for now. You know, Enceladus and Europa, they're kind of a different beast almost to thinking about Venus and, and Mars as well. The challenge with detecting life, if we did detect life on Mars or Venus, would be, is it truly an independent origin of life? Or was that some panspermia contamination back and forth between the Earth? Europa and Enceladus, it's harder to imagine that happening because of its protective, thick, icy lid. And so I would be much more excited about the discovery of life in Europe because to me that would be more compelling that there was a second independent origin and thus I'd feel better about the chances of life elsewhere. So is that uh, asterisk always going to hang over anything we bring back from Mars? I think maybe Sarah might be a good person to ask that. I mean, I think my feeling is that you'd, you'd have to do some kind of genetic sampling or something to try and establish an independent origin, but what that in practice would look like is something you'd have to ask the biologists. I think one of the other things to bring on to this is like for Mars specifically, right, we have this worry that might we, we might have just brought hitchhikers along with us on the earlier missions that could survive. Hmm. So it doesn't even have to be panspermia, right? And then when you think about panspermia, where you could bring life from one place to the other, everything else being equal, if we assume that we need water for life and a surface, then the Earth actually provides the longest and best condition. So I know that it sounds much, much better. People want to think they are from Mars, right? Maybe the life came from Mars or from somewhere else. But just by we don't know how life started, or we know that it's we have life, right? And we know that we had water for a long time here in the Earth. Chances are that if we find similar life somewhere else, it probably came from our planet. 
So they were like earthlings that happened to live on Mars, if it's the same origin. It's more likely than everybody being in Marsling because water just wasn't around that long on Mars. But however that may be, and if we find life on Mars and Venus and Enceladus, or Europa, if it has the exact same chemistry in the DNA pairs, right? So we're going back to bio. We will wonder, we will always wonder if there was a contamination in the best possible sense that life spread. So what we really want, what we really, really want as scientists to find is something that has just the different chemistry in the DNA pair, just one, I don't care, right? Something <coughs> that is just different. And then, as David was saying, then, you know, there's a second origin of life. And if there's a second within our solar system and it's few planets and moons, right, then the chances are just so much higher that it could have evolved somewhere else too. And this is why even finding like a bacteria somewhere that looks different, that might not be the life that we all envision communicating with or so, that's what that gives us, the, the chance that this should have happened somewhere else two if it happened twice in our own solar system. So, so let me, with Sarah, um, you know, we can talk about how much more information you get by bringing the, the Perseverance rover is stashing rocks right now to bring back 2030-ish. Uh, and then when on Earth they can be analyzed molecule by molecule. I'm not a geochemist, but that's obviously a lot of information compared to a noisy exoplanet spectrum. So what might, we, what level of information would we get from a Mars rock of known provenance as opposed to the meteorites that... Well, I mean, it depends what's there. It's what Lisa's saying. If we could find a really complicated molecule, like so complicated, that it's extremely unlikely it could just be made in nature, like our DNA molecule. I think everyone agrees there's no way that could be made, but a different type of DNA, not our own. If we could see that, we'd be like, wow, that's just awesome. So I think that's kind of are the best wildest dream that we find. There is life. We look at the molecules. There's something so complicated that it's just nothing you would normally find lying around. So the most frustrating situation would be if Martian life did truly start independently of us and it just converged to a similar no, 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 genetic no. solution. Okay, so I've done, my team has like found all these obscure papers. They're not obscure to the people who work on them, but so you know our DNA, we, you know the ladder, it's the so-called base pairs, ACGT. And some person out in San Diego figured out how to change a couple of those base pairs, like a different type of base. It doesn't even hydrogen bond. It bonds a different way. Stuck it into a bacteria. And that bacteria survives and replicates and reproduces with like this different DNA with these different, this different rung. And now, of course, they started up a company to try to, like they have a startup that's supposedly going to make new drugs, you know, because mm. it's like a different type of bacteria. So like the fact, like... That it would converge like the identical DNA is just, I think, I'm not a biologist, but from mm -hmm. this one example I gave you that it was, if someone could do it in 10 or 20 years, presumably nature would have way more easier time. And so we don't need to, it to be the same. Right. So, so it is compelling to, to bring the, the material back from Mars. And like I'm not saying I necessarily want to do that. I'm just saying that like having been a part of this, I'll just maybe like give a, a brief explanation as I can. I'll give you two separate things. So this idea of finding a gas in the atmosphere that doesn't belong, it turns out we can take credit, right, for past astronomers. Astronomer James Jeans, nearly 100 years ago, wrote it in a footnote that oxygen here on Earth, it's so reactive, it shouldn't be here. It's only here because it's produced by life, and that maybe we should look for oxygen elsewhere. 
So this idea that we should look for a gas that doesn't belong, supposedly it's been around for over nearly 100 years. I was part of a team, I was just peripherally involved with a big discovery where we found a gas that isn't made by life, it shouldn't exist, it's called phosphine in the planet Venus. Mm -hmm. We got burned so badly by the community. <laughs> Tiny signal, maybe uh, people who people looked at the data didn't recover the signal, other people recovered it, wanted to attribute to a different gas. There's like this huge story that I couldn't unpack for you. We just have to dial back 20 years and a different, totally different ground-based astronomer. You are all, you two at least were here. Mike Mumma, he found methane on Mars with the ground-based telescopes. Methane could be made by life, it could be made by geology, but the pushback was so severe. And even now I just found out that there's been a rover that's detected it and supposedly an <coughs> orbiter, uh, it's still not believed. So this idea of like gases that don't belong, I'm also trying to be provocative so someone will disagree, but you know, it's very um, well, contentious. The flip, the flip side of the gases that don't belong is, is David Lovelock, you know, Gaia, mm -hmm. telling, the NASA, telling NASA in the 70s, you're wasting your time, you know, Mars is dead, you know, it's, I mean, that was a blanket statement, not enough information. But let me jump in what Sarah yeah. was saying. So I think what you get from us right now is also that this is 20 years of experience that we are unwrapping for you right now. So if you have a rock and that rock has super complicated molecules and you have it in the lab and you can give it to 10 different labs on Earth, people will agree. That doesn't, to me, necessarily mean, and I completely get where Sarah's coming from, right, because phosphine and methane and so on, but I think what, what we are allowed, and that's by chance, because there are so many stars out there that happen to have planet at the right distance that might or might not be like yours, right? But those ones we cannot get to, because if you have our own solar system and you shrink it to the size of a cookie, then the next star over in the same scale is about two football fields away. So we can't get there. We cannot get a sample. We can't. But we have numbers that are forever in our favor. We have thousands of these stars. And it turns out that every star has at least a planet. Could be like Jupiter or Saturn, like you're big or small. But every fifth one has one that's small enough to be a rock like the Earth and at the right distance, so not too hot and not too cold. So what we lose in terms of we can touch this and everybody will agree to this cannot be made otherwise, right? This is a different base pair of DNA and so on. We gain in numbers because if we have this combination that on Earth and Lovelock in 65 was one of the first people who, who, uh, who made the argument of the pairs of gases that would react together, that would be oxygen and methane, that usually go to CO2 and water. Thus, if you find oxygen and methane at the same time, and they haven't gone to CO2 and water yet, something's producing this in big amounts right now, or they would have reacted. That's basically the argument. And then you have to trace back, do you have any way to get these gases that require no biology, right? That's the first thing you want to do. Can you get this without any biology involved? In this specific combination of gases, and there are some caveats we can talk about, but basically this specific combination of gases we can't get in a normal temperate planet uh, without life, at least not that we know it, right? We, we have no solution other than at least the oxygen is created with life, but you need the other gas there to make sure that it would have reacted 
to CO2 in water so that there's really a lot that oxygen makes right now. So dialing this all back, there's gonna be a fight in the scientific community about whether or not the specifics are right. But I think, and that's being an optimist again, if we were to find the combination that we cannot explain with everything else but life, that indicates life on our own planet, that I think for at least half of the scientific community would be the smoking gun. So there will always be voices against it, right? I, I, I say well, I think the thing to do is to have the panel discussion when we have that exciting data in hand and have people right. exactly. can disagree here. I have, a, yeah. I have a sidebar question, <laughs> go. Go, but go ahead, Rebecca, but I have my sidebar question is, you're a curator. Have you got your dibs in on rocks <laughs> from Perseverance? We have, we have some Mars rocks so yeah. over across the, right. across the park. Um, and we also have some of the stardust, comet dust over there. I, I find um, when you assume that you know what you're going to find, you're making a huge mistake. And I, this is my biggest, a theme of my career has been look for things that with the least uh, restrictions on what you're going to find. When we discovered the, this brown dwarf back in 1995, um, it had very clear signatures of methane, water, uh, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide. Um, it turns out a little bit of ammonia as well. And the immediate reaction of the theorists was, this data is fabricated, it's all wrong. This can't be true because my models don't show this to happen. There was one theorist in Japan who did predict it. And then suddenly everybody decided, oh, wait, hang on, this is a natural thing. Um, so, and the way we found that was not by biasing our survey to look for strange things orbiting nearby stars. It was to open the parameter space as much as possible. Whatever is there, um, all we had to show was that it was orbiting the, that star, and that would tell you how big it was and how, what its temperature was. So I, I find these arguments that we have to find this combination of molecules not very convincing to me scientifically. That's because I, I mean, it gets back to this whole question of, of second origin of life. That we have no evidence that that didn't happen here on mm -hmm. Earth. In fact, there could be pockets of life here on Earth that have not interacted with us. Um, one could, they don't necessarily have to be on the surface. There's plenty of life that's not on the surface. This um, is the shadow yeah. biosphere idea. Yeah, this kind of thing. So I mean, there's, a, there's one, there's the other one, there's a Silurian hypothesis right. that there was a technological <laughs> civilization yeah. that we can't it's see. Yet. Just down there. It's a Doctor <laughs> Who episode. Who couldn't like that? You know? So I have to say, one, one thing I'm a little bit uncomfortable about with looking for gases that don't belong or, or pairs of molecules like this, you can extend this, right? So you can say you're looking for anything which doesn't belong. And that's kind of what technosignatures do. We look for things which we think planets by themselves shouldn't be doing or stars by themselves shouldn't be doing. And you can extend that. You can look for things in the solar system that shouldn't belong, artifacts. Or you can look in the sky and see something in the sky that doesn't look like it belongs and think that's an alien flying through. And so the, the danger is whenever you see something that, that you don't recognize in your current understanding, you leap to life and you leap to aliens every time. It's a god of the gaps type uh, way of deducing life. And it's not very satisfying if that's, your, if that's your means of claiming aliens. And we have to be cognizant of the fact that our understanding of biology, chemistry, physics, solar system, 
is finite and is ever evolving and growing. And so it's very challenging. How do you look for something which but, you know, is outside of known laws when your knowledge of those known laws is itself incomplete? That, that's always going to be a challenge if, if that's your definition for looking for life. Well, I, I want to follow up a little because, um, you know, when it comes to an unknown metabolism, what we, we know Gil Levin, you know, swore for decades that it, there was the indeterminate result from Viking was possibly a positive on a, you know, something that we weren't looking for. So just because you've mentioned it and we do talk about it, technosignature, when you're talking about, can you just elaborate on how we think of those and what does that mean? Sure. I mean, a technosignature is very broad. In, in traditionally, when we thought of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, it was pretty much radio focused. It was looking for radio transmissions, maybe a prime number sequence or something. And that would be fantastic because then the ambiguity would be very low. I think that's always been the great appeal of technosignatures is that if you, if you get something like that, like a message with rich information encoded and compressed, there'd be very little doubt it was artificial. Um, and as, as time has gone on, we've, we've realized that we are using radio less and less for communication, so we shouldn't just limit ourselves to radio. And so technosignatures has now broadened out to include really anything. It could be climate change on the planet. It could be the heat island effect that we have in New York City that you could thermally map from afar. Um, it could be the satellites we're putting up, like Starlink, that you could maybe detect the glint off. So any, any sign about technology. Um, and then the problem there is that you're now making speculations about alien technology, which is, again, where you get into this very slippery problem. And, uh, of course, we had this with Oumuamua. We had this with Voyage Star, two very weird astrophysical effects that were detected. And, again, it's God of the gaps. As soon as you see something you don't understand, there's always going to be an astronomer that, that will come in and say, well, that could be an alien because an alien can explain anything, <laughs> absolutely yeah, anything. Could explain Loeb, the universe he's a very smart itself. astronomer. So <laughs> <laughs> he writes a book. Yeah. Well, there you go. So that, that is uh, another problem there. Can, Sarah, can you analogously, you know, for our audience, define biosignatures and, you know, the problems? Well, we loosely call a biosignature gas. It's a gas that is made by life that accumulates in an atmosphere of a planet far away and one that we can detect remotely with our space telescopes. That's a very straightforward forward definition, but it turns out to be incredibly hard to actually find one and unpack that, and we're not quite there yet. What because about reflectance you, spectra? Would you include that? It's tricky. The red Probably edge or not. something? <laughs> no? Because you've okay. written, you, know, you wrote a paper where you opened up the universe of possible chemicals. and Right. Well, my team had worked on, so to your point of we don't know what to expect, we literally went to work on every single molecule that's in gas form like at some kind of plausible range of temperatures and pressures. And uh, we found so many gases, like 14,000. And a large number of those gases, believe it or not, they have like a halogen, so they have like a fluorine or something that's very light attached to it. And we wanted to know if uh, how many of these are made by life. Like, are they all made by life? I would challenge anyone here who's not a chemist to think of a gas, and the chance is it's actually made by life. It turns out that every molecule in our atmosphere that is there to the part per trillion level. So that's there to tiny, tiny amounts is actually made by life. Although it usually has a dominant source that's not life. Like even ozone is produced inside some cells. <laughs> so what if, what if you found a um, couple of neon lines on a planet? Oh, well, wait, but I forgot to say one thing though. <laughs> I know, I forgot. You know, and that whole Vegas story about what's in our atmosphere, like it would be fun. That would be a techno signature because our inert gases don't right. really do anything. Life doesn't use them. 
Yeah, that would be awesome. Okay. But so the idea is that there's just so many gases, like the mold in your fridge, I think everyone has that. <laughs> that smells bad. That's a biosignature gas or the pine forest. We were in Central Park today. It was so beautiful. The flowers are coming out in the trees. Those are biosignatures. But most of them just aren't produced in high quantities, right? You're walking right. around. You're not like overpowered by like lilacs everywhere, only when you walk by that one tree. So. And there's an analogy of this with minerals. You know, as the Earth mm -hmm. evolved geochemically, that number of mineral species grew from dozens to hundreds right. to thousands, yeah. thousands, and most of, of them are implicated with biology. So if you're doing reflectance spectroscopy and counting mineral species in some yeah, thinking future. about all these gases. By the way, it ended up being a bit of a wild goose chase because molecules. If you think about a water molecule, um, it's an oxygen and two hydrogens. The atoms move around, like those of us who have to teach it, I'm sure Lisa can do this better than I can. It's the cheerleading molecule. So it can go like this, it can go like this. You know, the atoms, if I'm oxygen and my hands are hydrogen, it has a lot of ways to move around. So it turns out all these 14,000 molecules, if they have like an end point, you know, that would be like water, it would show similar features to water in the spectrum. Mm -hmm. I'm oversimplifying that, but the point is that molecules have similar what we call functional groups and they may appear the same to an astronomer. So it's kind of, um, we actually found other useful thing. It sort of hit what Rebecca's saying that if you set out to do one thing, you might find something else completely unexpected and that project kind of went in a different direction. Yeah. You don't know what you're looking for, but just to all of our credit, because we share a similar thing of being around like at the beginning, as Lisa too, but um, you know, we always set out to like make a framework. So all this hard work we're doing, we think we're predicting and understanding, but in the end, we're just making a framework. So when we find a thing we don't yeah, understand, we exactly. can fit it in. Because even though the people didn't believe you, you had good reason to believe it. Because yeah. you know, Jupiter is methane and you know, you knew. Well, that's what we did, you know, we proved yeah, it I remember Jupiter, it. yeah. So, so you brought up a really interesting point, which is this, the evolution of the chemistry of Earth. You know, set over the past four and a half billion years, it's gotten much, much more complicated with time. But what happens for another five billion years before the sun, you know, before it seems unlikely life would exist here? Although I always imagine it would be fun if the Earth got ejected from the solar system. We'd probably carry on. I, I don't think we need the sun, but well, that's it. We'll just have a, the cockroaches will carry on. We saw this giant cockroach here. <laughs> I mean, so no, I'm not kidding. Giant, <laughs> you know, like, giant for could, New York. In New York. You, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, yes, we could all die. We could wipe out our human population, but something would survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like when you were a kid and you well, went to the museum. People might, too. Yeah. I mean, we have a lot of technology now. We don't need the sun. But <laughs> life doesn't but, need a star. Know, life doesn't need a star. I do. I, I absolutely hate the sun. It prevents me from observing half the time. So right. <laughs> So let me just loop back a bit to just momentarily to Venus because Dave mentioned it first, bracketing it with Mars. And so we have, you know, methane on Mars and phosphine on Venus as being these low concentration tantalizing biomarkers. But you, you, you bracketed Venus and Mars, so you're still a little, you're holding the door open for well, Just because just the panspermia situation. Okay. So I'd still want to see... Maybe, yeah, we could get in the laboratory, bring it back, and really slice and dice it and see what was really going on. Maybe I'd, right. maybe then I could be convinced. But I think just detecting life on either of those two is insufficient, at least to establish that how there's life elsewhere beyond the universe. Mm -hmm. And by the way, when we talk about life, uh, the question was life beyond Earth. I mean, a lot of cosmologists would say the, the universe is infinite. And so if the universe is infinite, then of course there's, there's right. life elsewhere. It's just infinite space for that to happen. I think what we're really interested in is life in a vicinity to us that we can observe it and have mm -hmm. scientific evidence for it. And so 
it's kind of a moot point to worry about life on the other side of the universe because it just, of course, can't interact with us. So uh, I think when we talk about life, we are interested in the nearby stars that JWST will right. be targeting, the solar system, and maybe even uh, our own galaxy because obviously if there was a roaming civilization in our galaxy, that would seem to have some potential implications right. to us. So we'll, when you we'll go to exoplanets. Go ahead. Sorry, just to, to jump back in what we were saying. And so... What we have, and I completely, completely agree, like with Rebecca and everyone, that as scientists, we're looking for everything, right? But we had discussed the problem that we're having to, uh, to, to come back to the thing. It's like, is this really a form of life, right? And so now when we throw in life as we don't know it, completely don't know it, right? And we cannot make it in the lab. That's our biggest problem. If we could make it in the lab, we could change things, right? We could figure out how life changes, what the gases is that change, for example, that goes into the atmosphere. We could figure out how some of the geochemistry is going. So, of course, we're looking for anything that we cannot explain, too, right? So we're not limiting ourselves at all. But it is a really... Uh, I think also a valid question for somebody to say, so uh, you want to go and look for everything, what we do, what I do, uh, but so what's he going to tell you, right? And so there is a subset, and especially because Rebecca just brought up and you brought up before how our planet evolved through time, that's the first paper I've ever written, actually, <laughs> <laughs> about how our planet evolving through time would look like seen from a telescope. And it was much harder than I ever anticipated. And luckily, I didn't know how hard it would be because I don't think I would have ever written that paper. It was like, took me three years to get the model together because we understand so little about our Earth the further we go back in time. And so I think one thing, and then more than happy to jump to exoplanets, I think one thing that we have to um, base our search in is the one planet we know that has life, ours. And there it is critical that we actually look at the whole thing through, through time and also at the incredible diversity of biota we have. <coughs> so yes, most likely it's not going to be uh, a planet like the Earth right now with green plants, right? There would, you would have like all these things that would have to get exactly right, right? And if you're trying to look for humans then you probably would need something like an asteroid impact and the dinosaurs dying out, or you might have dinosaurs who send signals, you know, who knows? But even if you return the evolution of our own planet, the argument is, in the biological community, you wouldn't end up with us because something else would have been just a little bit different, evolved life, absolutely, but probably just not us, right? Or just the conditions outside, a little bit different, no asteroid impact, not us, something else. So. I think our planet provides us with a wide range of life that actually lives here. If you go to Yellowstone, for example, you see all these beautiful colors that are different kinds of life. And so, in a way, what we did in, in my team is we just took this, and then I call it bag, borer, and steel. We basically talked to every biologist we could find who happened <laughs> to have something in the lab that was colorful, that they did something else with. I'm like, so, don't you want to send this to us? You know, we're going to measure it and see how it would look to my telescope. Because you could imagine, let's go to an ocean planet. So there, there would be like more oceans. Or just let's go to a planet with an ocean. And you would have an algae bloom, red algae that covers the whole ocean. That'd be something that for a planet close by, as David was saying, absolutely, like we want something close by so we get enough light to identify if there's life on it. That's something that you'd be able to see in a reflection spectra, not now, 
but with the next generation of telescopes, as for example, Sarah has figured out how to help us do that, get enough light. And so this is just the one thing before we jump off <coughs> that I wanted to move in, that we have an incredibly diverse set of life, especially when you look through time on our own planet. And to me, it would be foolish not to use it to its fullest extent if we look for life somewhere else. And then, of course, life could be very different, and we look for anything that's out of the ordinary that we can't explain. But I love your, I, I will borrow your phrase now, David. It's the <laughs> god of the gaps, or what, what do you call it? Mm. Beautiful, god of the gaps, because everyone's like, the it's, aliens. <laughs> but it, it's so easy, right? If we don't understand something in science, it's great if you can call it aliens, because then it's done, you know? It's just like, yeah. it's just aliens, it's you know? No, that, I mean, that's, the danger. that's <laughs> just a core truth of astrobiology. We, we have to learn as much as we can from the history of our planet, as much as we know it, and yeah. we don't. Mm -hmm. And the, what's the role of contingency and so on? So I want to do leave, do want to leave the solar system behind, get out of our backyard. <laughs> um, but one more question uh, of the objects mentioned and talked about in some length: Mars, Venus, Enceladus, Europa. Nobody mentioned Titan. Yeah, I was like, in I was terms about to say we're missing one. Life as we don't know it. So yeah. what what should we? How should we think about Titan? We've got Dragonfly. We've got some interesting w ways to approach Titan. Well, I think it's really fascinating. And it's, it's a very cold world, so the chemistry is quite different from what we know here. It's only 93 Kelvin, you know, which is way below mm -hmm. zero Fahrenheit Celsius. Um, I think it's a very compelling place to go and look for things. And as you mentioned, we're sending some helicopters there. So we should send a boat. Quadcopter. Okay, sorry. Even cooler. No, Excuse even cooler. It's a quadcopter. And, and it's technically, <laughs> technically way easier than Mars because the yes. atmosphere is thicker than there. Yeah, exactly. Made of the same got, stuff. I so. think the pressure, the atmospheric yeah. pressure on the surface is about a bar, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same mm -hmm. as here in this room. So you could fly things easily. But you could also put a submarine in the methane lakes. What, mm -hmm. what, what would you find in there? I mean, <laughs> if it would even survive. But I think that's a really, really cool place to... Go look for anything weird. I mean, it may not be biology, but there's yeah. some very strange stuff going on in that world. So in your parsing of possibilities, <laughs> where do, what does Titan speak to you? I mean, I think you? Titan's awesome. It's a bit harder to get to. It's so cold. There might not be as much variety yeah. of chemistry that could happen, but I think it's amazing. The problem what? is there's too many planets too, and moons, too little money. Yeah. And, we're, and when we talk about these, this sort of cryogenic biosphere, this outer solar system, moons and so on, um, you know, referencing back to how far, to, how hard it is to detect an exomoon. Why don't you tell us why exomoons <laughs> are so hard to do for people who think, well, you've got thousands of exoplanets. How hard could an exomoon be? Well, I mean, I've spent like my entire career trying to do that, so I can <laughs> definitely <laughs> tell that it's hard. Um, I guess, I guess it's hard because if it depends on how big the moon gets. Um, and it turns out, you know, we were optimistic when we started the search. We thought moons could be as big as, you know, Earth or even larger than that, super-Earths. And, of course, we built this mission called Kepler, which detected thousands of transiting planets, planets passing in front of their star. And it found planets as small as the Earth quite often. Um, and so that immediately tells you that it could find uh, Earth-sized moons. And we didn't. I mean, we looked really hard for those things. So my feeling is that Earth-sized moons <coughs> are pretty rare if they're out there. Um, 
However, we know in our own solar system that moons have formed in at least three major different ways. You have like impacts, circumstellar disks around Jupiter and, and uh, Saturn, and you have captures like Triton around Neptune. So there seems to be at least several ways of making big-ish moons. And so I would eat my hat if those types of moons don't exist out there. And I guess what's so exciting is that JWST is finally giving us that capability to detect those moons. I do think it's interesting because um, uh, there's an interesting psychology thing that I've learned about looking for moons that I, is relevant to this dialogue about life and experimenters bias that we've talked about, this human element. And you know, I've been one of the few people looking for moons for a long time, and I've always known, personally, if I claim an exomoon, it would be really good for my career, right? Because you know, we all have a sense of ego, and we all know that science rewards success. It doesn't reward no results, but I've been just publishing no results for years on this. Um, and so you, whenever you see that hint, you know, you, uh, many times I've looked at a transit and seen that, that moonlight dip I was looking for, and it turned out to be a false positive. I, I always have to control my excitement the most, because I know I have the most in it. I'm, I'm, I'm the most biased person looking at this data set there could possibly be, because <laughs> I have a personal mm -hmm. um, weight riding on it. And so I think about that a lot in the search for life, that we all want the answer to be yes, or most of us want the answer to be yes. And so it does, every time you look at that little spectral signature that looks like life, it's so easy to get overexcited and jump into it. And that's something I've learned from the moon story, and I think it could be relevant Have here. You, I've had, uh, an ex not with life, but I've had an, that experience more than once where you're like, wow, I found the most amazing thing. And then you might do whatever you can to the data, that amazing thing is there, until you go back to the telescope, take new data, <coughs> nothing. I yeah. want to know if that happened to you. Oh, all the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sometimes but, it's but like, you have yeah. to be very careful. I mean, you know, like, like David was just saying, if you find something that's truly remarkable um, or some extreme thing, like the brightest star ever seen or the, the largest galaxy or I don't know, you have to be very, very careful with how you evaluate that because you, your initial calculations may tell you something nuts, but a responsible scientist has to... Confirm and confirm and confirm. Like with the brown dwarf stuff, we waited well over a year to publish that because we needed to confirm it. And that's a, it's such a good example because yeah. the, the, the field is littered as with oh, the first yeah. exoplanets with the bodies <laughs> yeah. of people's reputations. <laughs> yeah, and that, but people are like, oh, you published this garbage. And then, <laughs> you know, but they usually get it in Nature or Science, you know, one of those publications. <laughs> I don't publish there anymore. <laughs> one, of, one of my favorite stories in this, just to, just to add this in, is, is Percival Lowell with Mar Martian Canals. Yeah. Because you read his uh, books, which I studied quite extensively uh, when I was learning about him, and he was convinced there was life in the universe everywhere. He, that was just his opinion. Mm -hmm. And he was convinced further that Mars must have life on it because he saw the ice caps. Mm -hmm. It was like, there's water there. There's water, there's life. He was just, he was, he was a slam dunk in his mind. There was life there. He just didn't have any evidence. And then he went and looked at, you know, through his telescope at that thing, and he was told by an ophthalmologist in Boston that he had the greatest eyesight he'd ever seen. And so he was preloaded to A, think that everything he saw was real, mm -hmm. and B, that aliens <laughs> are everywhere. And so as soon as he saw a mirage, these streaks across Mars, he immediately interpreted it to be Martian canals. And he finished, you know, one of the best telescopes in the world at <laughs> Mars's closest approach for 30 or 40 years. Right. So yeah, he had no but one But does could anyone know how the story goes? Like when he found out it wasn't, it was just effect, it was like his eyes, right? It was just the- Well, um, he, he never, he never accepted that. He, he wrote never popular books it. on it. I'm grateful in a sense to him, because his 
night assistant was A.E. Douglas, who, you know, said, no, that's wrong, mm. it's not there. He got fired and he yeah. went down the road and found his <laughs> steward observatory. So that's why I have a job. So yeah. But, um, okay, let's, let's, let's pivot or move out to the, the exoplanet regime. And, and maybe we should start because it's in the news all the time and people have such expectations. Uh, and I don't want you to pour cold water on those great expectations, <laughs> but James Webb, what can and can't James Webb do in this field? in the next years. A anyone, all of you, I'm sure, can tell me this. I think just Lisa's really the expert. <laughs> I, I, was, I was reading her papers to learn about this subject, so I really enjoyed her stuff on this. I, I owe you a coffee. Okay. <laughs> um, the James Webb, for the first time, gets us to the edge of technical possibility to look at the atmosphere of a planet that is about the size of the Earth, but it has to orbit a star that's much smaller, like a small red star. Is it gonna be easy? No, because stars have their own characteristics. So the biggest problem we're facing is that we have to take the effect of a changing star out of a very small signal. Because if you have a planet like the Earth, uh, think of the atmosphere, so David was saying, when the, light go, when the planet goes in front of the star, right, it blocks some of the light from the star. This is how we find the planets. But while that's happening, part of the light from the star gets filtered through the atmosphere of the planet before it hits my telescope. And Sarah made this amazing, I actually am not half as good as doing the cheerleading thing, <laughs> about when light hits a molecule, it makes it swing and rotate. Thus, part of the light actually doesn't get to my telescope, producing basically a passport stamp of what molecule the light hit on its path to me. So that's the story. But now the problem is, this atmosphere, if it's a giant planet, is quite extended. Lots of gas, so lots of gas that the light can actually filter through. Now, if you go to an Earth, then the atmosphere is basically like the peel of an apple. And so that's what you have where the light can actually go through. So your signal is tiny. So the James Webb Space Telescope, for the first time, allows us enough light capturing capability so that we can figure out if there are differences in this peel of the apple, right? So the light that's, let's say, green, that goes through, hits the molecule, doesn't come through because the molecule swings and rotate. The light that's a little bit less green goes through because it doesn't have the right energy to make the molecule rotate and swing. That's how we read an atmosphere. But now on top of this, the star will change. That's my background. And the signal is so small that I actually cannot do it in one pass. So if I collect the light of uh, the planet going around the star, right, that should be it. But it's just not enough. So I have to wait until the planet comes by again and add that light. And I have to make the assumption that the star didn't change much and that the planet didn't change much. For the planets, probably true because you see the whole thing. So if it's winter here and summer here, and then summer here and winter here, probably the same. But the star could have changed just because it's so much brighter, just tiny changes of the stars. And, and red dwarfs are fairly active. Very right? active. And so I'm just paraphrasing this because we have the first time the opportunity to actually do this Earth-sized planets 
at the right distance in this habitable zone around these small red stars. Have we encountered issues? Yes. Are we working on them? Yes, and this is the royal we, because there's a lot of amazing young scientists who actually get this to work. So I'm now one of the older gear who says, good luck. This is going the right direction. I see and the third question well. is, will it work? <laughs> will it work? I yes. mean, I think some people are convinced it will, but if, it, if we can't solve this problem of the background star mm -hmm. changing, right. we're, we're not doing this at all. <coughs> and and, and in know. fact, it's not even just transit to transit. It's in a single transit. There are spectral features mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. the star that... Mm -hmm overwhelm the planet because you know star spots people just think they're cooler stars they're not right their spectra is very different so we mm -hmm. sound very serious here but it's like it could <laughs> be a showstopper for us and, and, and also james webb was you know designed it, it was it was specced before exoplanets really were a thing yeah. it's probably not optimized for this experiment instrumentally <coughs> however mm -hmm. I, I would say and i completely agree with sarah you know we're finding what the showstoppers could be but that is exactly like what Rebecca said before, right? You find something that you didn't know existed, like a brown dwarf or some chemistry in an atmosphere of a star, right? That you just never had the capability to see because your instruments weren't good enough. Now our instruments are good enough. And to me, what's our saving grace in a way, because this is at the edge of technology, is that the launch of James Webb was so perfectly executed that instead of getting five years, that's a nominal timeline, we think we get 15 extra. And those 15 extra, because we have enough fuel on the James Webb, allows us to learn from this data that we now in addition get from the star. What do we need to learn about the star? What do we need to learn to get the signal right? We were basically all a little bit panicking, and this is now me interpreting this for everyone else. We're like, if we have five years and we need three or four years to get the signal right, right? Mm. We don't have much wiggle room if anything is different than we expect, and we know it will be different because our instrument got better. And so that's why I'm hopeful and we've written a lot of, or a couple of, what we could do with the James Webb Space Telescope, theoretically, of course. Mm -hmm. But now, Sarah is part of the James Webb Space Telescope team. I am. I don't know. I think you guys are not on it yet. But I we, have, yeah, I don't, we, we didn't accept my proposal. It's right. too radical. <laughs> but basically, scientists can ask for time of the James Webb. But what I just mean is, like, so Sarah and me happen to be on two different instrument teams. And when you make an instrument and when you put so much time into deciding how to make the instrument, they give you some guaranteed time up front to make up for all the time you spent writing this and making the instrument. And thus, we've seen the data that I'm not allowed to tell you anything about. But we've seen the data, and the data is exquisite. And there are problems, but we are addressing them. It's not as if we're like, oh my god, there's no way in hell we can figure this out. It's kind of like, OK, we expected there to be more that we didn't know yet. And a lot of amazing young scientists, and older scientists, but mostly young scientists, are actually uh, figuring out how we get around it. And so um, with the extended lifetime of James Webb, mm -hmm. I'm actually very hopeful that if there's life where it could be, anywhere it can be, and if it changes the atmosphere in a way that we cannot explain other than with life, we have a really we have great to wait chance. 15 years, though. Right. It's, a long, it's a long way. Well, yeah. and if sure. we're talking about 15 years, so we put a lot of our chips on James Webb, but there are three large telescopes under construction. They're all <laughs> going to take first light in the next five to seven years, we think. 
um, with 10, 20, 25 times more collecting area than James Webb, there's adaptive optics that- However on the ground. Yeah, so, so what should we expect from these large new ground-based telescopes and will, can they do things that James Webb cannot do? Well, I mean, this is something I've spent 30 years working on. It's, I, I think you got the idea from me earlier that if you want to detect light, you need to do it definitively by seeing the fish, right? Yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Um, that's a theme of, of I have a lot seen of that movie. Research. It's not working out well. <laughs> oh, that Europa? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> do, not, do not talk about fish. <laughs> um, with the exoplanets, that has been my direction, is directly seeing them. That, that to me, you can learn so much more about them with, than with these indirect methods, which is the way the majority of them have been found, either through the motion of the star due to the mutual gravitational attraction of the two, um, or by it passing in front, as you know, you guys have done a lot of work on that. Um, I recently got into one of these indirect areas and we had a conference in Santa Barbara last week and I decided I'm getting out of this <laughs> because it, it's just too complicated. I want to see the damn thing. I want to see, you know, see it move around the, well, the star. Well, when are the first light instruments that can do that on the, any of these three large telescopes? <coughs> yes, yeah, so. Like, are they first light or are they second light instruments? Oh, no, they're yeah, they're planning coronagraphs on these things. So coronagraphs are basically um, instruments and I developed a lot of the technology that's being used in new major missions and large telescopes now. Um, the idea is you block out the light of the star so that you can see something faint next to it. Very trivial way to think of it is, you know, at night there's a car, you're standing on the side of the road, a car is coming toward you with these bright headlights on. You hold up your hand and you can see a lot more around that. Otherwise the light is blinding you. So we've developed a lot of different, very precise ways of doing this with starlight in astronomical optics. And I, the reason, it has interested me so much is that you see the thing. You're not, you're not, um, you know, assuming that there's something there that's doing this that is a planet. You actually see it. And once you see it, then you can dissect its light into these spectra and <coughs> find funky molecules and whatnot. It's a much more convincing way, I think, in, in terms of even though I, I'm not saying RVs or transits are, are crap, I'm, I'm saying. <laughs> um, if you want to convince a large number of people when you see it, it's there. I mean, right? <laughs> and I guess the problem from the ground is, as opposed to space, is you, you, you're looking through all this gunk that happens yeah. to include water and oxygen and right. ozone. Which is exactly what you're looking for. Right. So <laughs> It's also just a romantic image, just <coughs> saying right about the pale blue dot and yeah. there'd be the first photo that would yeah, be I mean, why did people front of New York Times that, right? or something. Yeah. Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. it would be spectacular to see that. So we have imaged uh, quite a number of planets and, and what, it, what you call a planet becomes sort of a question in and of itself. Kind of like uh, uh, one of the people here have said earlier, um, the whole question of what is life is is very philosophical. You can ask the same thing about planets and stars. You know, physically, what are the differences here? What are we talking about? And they're kind of blurry lines. You know, nature doesn't have fine lines. There no, there's no such thing as a straight line in nature, let alone a de demarcation. Um, so we should expect just to you know, punctuate it for people who don't know, the three large telescopes under construction are we have the Giant Magellan Telescope in Chile, 22 and a half meter, the 
Um, Caltech California telescope is 30 meters, a little stalled out on Mauna Kea, but maybe they'll get built there. And the Europeans have a, a larger, the largest of the three, the most advanced of the three, funded by European treaties, so that money lo rolls in like the tides as opposed to the entrepreneurial <laughs> Darwinian American system, which sometimes doesn't work. Um, so these telescopes will be doing these experiments in the same, this time frame we're talking about, and yeah. it's going to be very exciting. But maybe let's go back to, I think it's going to be amazing to do this from the ground because we can actually fix it and the telescopes yeah. are going to be there not just for a five or luckily now probably 20 year time scale. But the big problem Rebecca just brought up is if you want to find life in gases that characterize as an Earth analog like our planet, now you're starting to have the problem, not just that the atmosphere between you and the stars moves and blurs your image, that you can take out to a certain extent, but the problem is like the water concentration in our own atmosphere, the oxygen concentration in our own atmosphere, we do not know down to the level that we would see a tiny signal from another planet, right? So the only way we can do this, and we, there's a lot of amazing people working on this, is to say, look, the other planet moves around its star. So there is a differential. It, it moves compared to us. And when something moves, this is also why we know that the universe is expanding, then the lines that indicate that, like, energy hit, light hit a water molecule, for example, or an oxygen molecules, those lines shift. Still the same barcode, so we know this is water, but it's not exactly where we find it in the lab. It's a little bit redder if it moves away from us, or a little bit bluer if it moves towards us. So what you need to do is you need to find the small Earth analog planet at the biggest change of speed compared to us, to shift those lines as far as possible away from the lines we have in our own air. And this is where even with the 40 meter telescope, it will be at the limit of possibility because that now limits how long you can observe, right? Mm -hmm. Because the lines smear if the thing moves. And it also limits um, when you can observe, when mm -hmm. you can observe this planet, because if the lines are just overlapping, then there's no way you can tell them apart. And so anything that's not an Earth's analog is gonna be amazing with these telescopes from the ground. But anything that's an Earth's analog will be extremely, extremely hard because you're just looking for the stuff that, that, you, that, that your light passes through in our atmosphere as well, mm -hmm. and so just to, Paraphrase, I think we can do a lot from the ground, but for Earth analogs, like real analog planets like the Earth, we might have to go to space because it becomes so complicated to tell the difference between our oxygen and any potential other oxygen. And just some sub subtext here. We're talking about these different methods. Uh, there's also different solar systems. And I think we've danced around this a little bit in this discussion. So we talk about these methods like transits or this method of like looking for the spectral lines. This is probably only going to work for small stars. With JWST, it's only going to work for the smaller stars, red dwarf stars. Very, very common. And you have Earth-like, or we think Earth-like planets pretty close to them. But are they truly Earth-like? We don't know. And then you have sun-like stars, like our own sun. And those, of course, they have to be further away to be in the habitable zone. And they're really only direct imaging is the only game in town for really 
having any attempt at getting the biosignatures in our sort of near-term lifetime, because JWST, the, the star's just too big. You'd never be able to detect the, these biosignatures in the transits. And I think that's important because we live around a sun-like star, so we know sun-like stars have life around them. We do not know about these red dwarf stars. They are the most common type of star in the universe. They live far longer than the sun. And from the early statistics we have from transit surveys, they appear to have more rocky-sized planets in the habitable zone around them than sun-like stars do. So there's three things that like, look great about them, but then it is such a different environment. They, they flare a lot. We've already talked about their activity. And so we have many legitimate concerns about whether these red dwarf stars could truly be habitable. And we might not get an answer for the sun-like stars for, for a little bit longer. Yeah, this is uh, the, the experiments are hard. So I, I think we're also alluding to, for, for people not in the field, the fact that even with by far the largest telescope we've ever put in space, uh, approaching the by far the largest telescopes on the ground, uh, these are hard experiments, and the target selection becomes important. And so I want to go back to Sarah on the fact that you know we, everyone knows the success of Kepler. Most of those are hundreds of light years away, and Tell us why TESS is such an important part mm -hmm. of this picture in terms of feeding us the best targets for the next wave of experiments. Uh, well, TESS is designed to just look at so-called nearby stars, but they're still tens to hundreds of light years away. It's Think of like just four glorified telephoto lenses bolted to a platform, staring at a giant strip of the sky for a month, and then tiling each hemisphere of the night sky in a year. So that's what TESS is doing. You know, it's not really funneling every like maybe half of the web or less planets are from TESS. Okay. And I mean, I think there's so many, we could just, I mean, once we get going, it would be, I think, too tedious, though. We could go through, like, every method and all the different options, but there's so many of them. Mm -hmm. But and I think maybe, can I just ahead, add yeah. something on to what David was saying? And it was a really, really good point, right? This is a completely different environment, and what we found with Kepler, what we found with TESS, as Sarah was just pointing out, and you were pointing out, Chris, you know, uh, it's just easier to find planets that are the right temperature around small stars because they have to be closer. It's like a bonfire, big bonfire. It's warm, you stand further away. Small bonfire closer by, but that means the closer by for a planet is that it comes around more often. So in all of our methods, except for direct imaging, we actually find them easier. And then by chance, nature seemed to make more of those rocky worlds around the small stars. So good for us, because these are the ones we can find by chance. But the point I wanted to uh, jump on of what David was saying is really great, right? So now you have a different environment. That doesn't mean that it can't be life, but it might mean we'll never find it because it has to be subsurface to actually shelter itself from radiation or maybe the atmosphere is not as permanent, you know, or it has to be forever in an ocean, right? Because water also mitigates radiation. It's not a problem. You just have to be further down. And why <coughs> don't we know? And this brings us back to the solar system. If there's life on Europa or Enceladus, because it's subsurface, <coughs> we'll have to go there and drill a hole in the ice to see if there's a fish, hopefully not, but if there's some life, hopefully, <laughs> in those oceans. And if you put that star 10 light years away from me and I can't get to it anymore, I can't do that. So there will be a subset, what we haven't talked about, and so it's great that David brought this up, of planets that will be habitable, that will have a striving biosphere, 
that will not be accessible to remote observations. And this is why, when we're selecting our targets, we're trying to learn as much as we can from the diversity of life on the Earth to hopefully make a first good guess about which ones uh, are good targets. And then there's necessity. If we can only look at small planets around small stars, right, and we have no other option, then it's definitely worth looking because we cannot, as we said before, discard it to say like, ooh, you and me, I, I usually when I teach this, I say, you and me landing on the planet, really bad idea because we're not used to radiation, we'll die. But life that developed there, maybe subsurface or in an ocean, could have completely different mitigation strategies for harsh radiation because it would have had to evolve for it. We didn't. So there's the subset of where life can be actually visible and change the biosphere, but you and me wouldn't survive. Cockroaches would, going back to Sarah's point about New York. Uh, but then there's- Cockroaches, what are you talking about? Okay, there's no cockroaches here, I'm sorry. Uh, but then there's also this really interesting subset of life that will be striving out there, but we won't see it because it's not remotely detectable and you just have to accept that. So the, the field is obviously heavily driven by technical capabilities, instrumentation, and so on. And, and James Webb, as remarkable is, is one of the, it's a general purpose telescope, as Hubble is, and you know the exoplanet niche has fitted into the. And observer. some cosmologists, like our esteemed yeah. discussion leader, <laughs> might want to use it for something else right. than finding life well, in the I mean, universe. I don't well, understand. Sarah was a cosmologist, and she just jumped ship. <laughs> she I mean, jumped ship. She jumped Chris, ship. I mean, she, you know? she saw the way the wind was blowing. Cosmology is kind of a dead end field, you know. So. <laughs> but tell us why we need another, yet another generation of you know purpose. Well, we've been talking about these red dwarf stars, but if we want to find and have options of like planets orbiting sun-like stars, true or twins, we have to get above the blurring effects of Earth's atmosphere and go to space. Do the chronograph, or we have the external version called Starshade. People have always known about this. It's like me saying I want to do sample return. You know, that's because we think it's the easiest way to get a job done, not because it's the best way. And we might all agree that's what the red dwarf stars are. It's the easiest thing we can do. It's not the right way we really want to do it. And so these more, the, this next generation of capabilities, that one in particular that you're involved in, what does it do that James Webb cannot well, and will not do? It's going to block out the starlight so we can see the planet directly, just like what Rebecca's talking about, but from space instead of the ground. And it's challenging technically? Incredibly I hard. It's one of the hardest, like, we're, we can barely do it under the laws of physics that we have. You think about like how small an atom is or various other physical factors, we're just lucky we're gonna be able to get the job done. But people have thought about this for decades. It's just only recently become technically feasible and so challenging, we're still another one or two decades out. What's really interesting is that the design of this telescope is very sensitive to how, how close is the nearest Earth-like planet with life on it. That's maybe you wanna survey say 100 and you hope that one out of 100 have life on it, but then the question is, how, what, what fraction of stars have those Earth-like planets around them? And that's the number that, that Kepler was designed to answer that would inform the, the engineering requirements for this, this telescope that we're talking about now. And frustratingly, it didn't quite get all the way there because it turned out stars were more tricky than, than we thought. And then there was a little engineering failure on board at three and a half years with the gyros. So there's some the like- reaction wheels. The it reaction turns out, wheels, I don't correct, know if you yeah. guys know that I'm just looking at the instrument builder, but they knew there was a problem with the reaction wheels, 
before Kepler launched. And apparently yeah. they opened it all up and looked at it. But you can't just go and buy one, like go to the store and get a replacement. I feel like in New York, I don't know, I've just been here for the weekend as a tourist, <laughs> but everything's available, like whatever you want. There's a 24-hour store, you just go and get it. <laughs> go and get a gyro. This one reaction and, and wheel. And so you like, can't buy used books anymore in New York, <laughs> which is a shame. <laughs> Strand, Strand Bookstore, really Strand. amazing. Oh, uh, Still used so books. So you know, think about this. You're going to launch this super expensive thing. You know you have a problem. Are you going to wait three more years to get a new part? Mm. Like, no. So they sort of crossed their fingers. There were four. They only needed three. But you know, one failed, then another failed. Yeah, but people got really clever with how to super clever. But the point, that, one so. of the points was that nature didn't cooperate. So people would joke like, "Our sun is not a sun-like star," which is silly because it's like the icon, right? Mm. But all the other stars were so variable, so we needed double the amount of time. But the telescope didn't last double the amount of time. They always do, like what Lisa was saying about Webb, how it launched so perfectly. Now it gets 15 extra years. Almost everything we've put in space lasts like way longer than it's supposed to, except for Kepler. It's kind of like if you buy a new washing machine. It's got a warranty, and it fails like one day after that warranty expires. <laughs> That's just exactly right. what happened. Uh, yeah. Is it, uh, just anyway, so the point was we don't know the number. How common are but we have Earths? big uncertainty on the number. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. Like a giant. Yeah. It's like not yeah. knowing at all. Right. I mean, the uncertainty is so big, it's like yeah. not knowing. Yeah. So, so it doesn't matter. We can... Just come back to one thing that's been alluded to indirectly. I mean, we, we, you know, we have the archetypus... And recognizing that the red dwarf opportunity is, is, a, is a good one because it's what we can do, and then the archetype of the Earth-like planet around the sun-like star. But I've heard or I understand that, you know, super-Earths are maybe super-habitable and maybe the Earth is not the best of all possible worlds, a Leibniz quote or whatever. So, um, <laughs> Well, I, I'd take issue with that, actually. <laughs> and it's based on some work that this guy did over here. I think we're on a super-Earth. I, if you look at the physics of rocky planets, there's an inflection point at about twice the size of the Earth where things start to look more like Neptune, for example. Less than that, yeah. Yeah, it's like less than two Earths. 1.6 to 1.9. Yes. Yeah. So two is a good number. We're on a super Earth. This is about as big as they get. So if you're looking for a place like this, they're not, they may be much smaller, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so I, that, I, that super Earth idea, you know, maybe we are on a planet that is outrageously inhabited with life, right? There's also a fun yeah. statistical argument that probably cosmologists would appreciate as well, <laughs> that if you are, you know, a random soul born into a random country, you're most likely to be born in a country with a high population rather than a small population, yeah. mediocrity principle. Right. And so if you're born onto a random planet, you're most likely to be born on a planet that has close to the maximum capacity of population rather than one of the smallest capacities. So there's been some clever Bayesian arguments made, not by me, but by, uh, I think Fergus Simpson wrote this paper showing that you can, you can predict the upper size limit just from that one data point is about one and a half Earth radii for the maximum size Earth, which turned out to be what we basically yeah. found yeah. observationally. Uh, so we may indeed be on one of the <coughs> largest rocky planets for life. But I think we can also go back to, and I agree where you come from, Chris, right? It's like astronomers are incredibly good at naming stuff, right? <laughs> so you have a string that's bigger than the Earth. You wanted to find an Earth. You want to get it published. And you want people to be excited about it. It's like, ooh, we'll call it Super Earth, right? We call things a black hole. It's like, ooh, it's dark, right? We call it Super Earth. It's like, ooh, it's Super Earth. doesn't mean it's better at all. It's just that astronomers like have that. learned how to name things to not be told by every journal in the world that every journalist is like, why would you care, right? Naming is half of the convention of getting a foot in the door to tell you why it's so interesting that we found these things. So 
you know, super is under quotes. Ultra cool is one of the best. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just momentarily back to the, the place where this subject will hit the popular imagination and consciousness when results being or start to get published. Um, sort of <coughs> not tamp down expectations, but just, just remind everyone why there's no, well, we've already sort of pretty much covered why there's no smoking gun biomarkers, but why the, the claim so the person bold enough to claim they've detected exobiology, why that's going to be such a hard thing to do with any particular set of data. Is that because it's true, right? I mean, it's because it's, pretty much every single gas can be made another way other than life. Mm -hmm. That's why. So where do you say when you're doing the experiment? I've only found one gas uh, that exists in our atmosphere that's not made Okay. Uh, by life, actually. So where do you set the bar for yourself in the experiment, if you're imagining the experiment? Well, the bar what? is gone, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> in this case. So I would, I would make a little bit of a connotation of what Sarah just said. The question is, like, if you're a scientist, right, if you want to be 100%, 100% sure of anything, let's do the Big Bang because you're a cosmologist, right? Mm. We're not 100% sure of the Big Bang. We're 99-something percent sure, right? And so I think in science, I do the same for the biosignature, right? Have I found something that I cannot explain with anything else than life? Then to me, that's step one that's incredibly exciting. Then I, as a scientist, will throw everything I have at it to try to dismantle it. We, I have data now that geologists and chemists and other people can use to figure out if they find another explanation for this, right? If it still holds up, it now reached the second level. So we, with everything we know right now, it's a caveat, right? We could learn something different tomorrow, have no other explanation in life. And I think this there's is never, where... The point is you're never going to have that. There's never going to be no other explanation. Right. That's the point. But there will be, um, you, you can think, or uh, I think about it, in a way that, is there any other option? Yes, but is that option gonna be likely if you like model a thousand planets? And, and that's that's like what all I'm just saying is that on Venus, let's assume the phosphine is real for a moment. I know mm -hmm. that's incredibly controversial. We've just gone through that like live mm -hmm. and people aren't willing to do probability. They're like, okay, if you get phosphine coming out of volcanoes, the volcano has to be more explosive than, remember that one volcano that messed up all the air travel? Hmm. more explosive than that. You have to have tons of water in your mantle. You can model the likelihood of that. Maybe people, they're not willing to go there. And so and these are exoplanets we have right. no information on. So but you're never going to get past a level. That's the problem. And but you can do all your models right. and you can say, I have this probability, but the bottom line is that I'm just telling you what, not me now, the rest, I'm sounding very aggressive, but just kind of passing on the rest of the community. That's well, just today, what, what about the analogous question, there never being no other explanation for a technosignature, for nitrous oxide, chlorofluorocarbons, whatever you want to... Oh, no, there are ex other explanations yeah. for those. So there, yeah, I mean, it's there, the same. There may, be some, there may be some that are hard to have phosphorus for, like a prime number sequence or something, I think is pretty difficult. Right. But even then, it could be a hoax. Uh, you know, so even then, there's still a false positive. Um, the, the big, you know, the big, the fundamental problem we have is, and we've talked about this a few times now, but we are trying to detect something where we just don't really understand all the physics. And so we don't, we call this like the false probability it's rate. The chemistry. Right. And we, we don't know, we don't know the false probability rate from, of chemistry, of physics to produce these uh, spurious signals that, that could trick us. And so that's where a lot of the work is actually happening right now is trying to 
quantify these false positive rates more and more. But I think we all have to be braced for the fact that there will be a claim of life. I mean, we've had it many times in the past before. And when that claim is made, it is just the start of the journey of decades of work of, and maybe we'll never, maybe the, the confirmation is will always be just 99% and never 100%. Like Zeno's uh, arrow, you know, just, yeah. you're never exactly going to get there. But we'll be able to converge to some high confidence optimistically assuming we can figure out these difficult problems. Right. And I also think like David just made this beautiful analogy, right? It's where our journey gets to start, right? right? Because it's we find something we cannot explain other than with life. Yes, I won't be able to say definitely no other thing, but this is now we have a start in a journey. We're gonna learn much more and we're gonna figure out what it takes for life on other planets. And this is where we're not at yet. And I think that's actually the level, this is the, the, this yeah. is the result I want to get to. I want to be part of this exciting real start of the journey where we're not having a bottle of wine and arguing whether there could be life in the universe, yeah. but where we have to our best guess right now, no other explanation, convincing explanation as than this being like. And skepticism is such a high quality for any scientist, so it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of skepticism, and as it should be. We need so warp drive. That's what we need. Yeah. Yeah. Warp drive. Yeah. So you want to answer so this question? You just have to go there. So I, wanna, I, I wonder if I can jump in. I yeah, want to yeah. ask a question that was brought up at the very beginning by someone about defining light first, so no one's tried to yeah. do that. And it's interesting because there's like, <clears throat> you've talked about everything around it, how you might find it, um, and of course, one of the topics that came up over and over again is something to do with the complexity or some pattern that you might discover that suggests that life caused it because nothing else might explain it. Well, I'll right. help a bit because since we're all astronomers, we get to sweep that definition of life <laughs> yeah. under the rug. But, 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 we say, oh, like, well, what is life? But yeah, I want to just say, does. what we is life? Does. Yeah, what, it doesn't mean we haven't thought about it, but what does life do? Life metabolizes mm -hmm. and right. life uses chemistry to extract energy from the environment, to store energy, and releases it. Right. We just kind of go. And it that. creates certain sorts of patterns. It leaves some sort of, we are hoping, some sort of footprint of that metabolism. But it won't necessarily. And so that, that's a problem that you, we could look at uh, TRAPPIST 1E, one of the, one of the tar top targets, for years and years, and we won't detect any biosignatures, hypothetically. But that doesn't mean there's no life there. We, uh, it's there so frustrating. Beneath the surface, yeah. There can yeah. be life like on Earth that ekes out exists a meager existence, and some life only divides itself its cells once every year, and that won't show a signature. What I was actually trying to drive at is if you find if we well look we can't say anything about things we can't find yet. I mean we're looking for things we can find, right? First of all, of course it could be things difficult that we know, to find that we know about. Right, exactly. Yeah. But I'm wondering if something really puzzling arises and there is some sort of phenomenon is very complex and suggests something that makes many of us think it could be life. Isn't that also useful to investigate? You yeah. say, well, I don't know if it's life, but wow, we're going to have to come up with some interesting models to explain why this Oddly is Oddly so. enough, on Venus in the atmosphere, there are these anomalies. There's a tiny amount of oxygen at parts per million level. There's tension detection of ammonia. There's a massive depletion in the cloud layer of sulfur dioxide and water vapor. And this list kind of keeps going. And people knew about all this stuff four decades ago, and they just like they couldn't mm. handle it, so they shelved it. <laughs> Went on the shelf for forty decades until this whole phosphine on Venus kind of reopened people's attention to it. So sometimes no, sometimes there's puzzles, and people just life could explain all of this, but they just don't go there. Uh, and think, sorry, go ahead, Lisa. I think one other thing to bring in the exoplanets in here, right? So we have the Earth and we have Venus, and our best explanation is that uh, Venus could have been like the Earth before. 
then it got hotter, hotter, hotter. It lost all its water into space, right? And then it ended up as Venus. But what I find very interesting in the search, and we have been talking about the search for life mostly, right? But we don't understand <coughs> the evolution of a rocky planet very well. We have some data for our own planet. But for example, how does Earth get to Venus? And now these exoplanets, these rocky worlds, there are some that are closer to their star, meaning they get more energy than the Earth does. And so what we can do is we can slot in, basically, those as moments in time between Earth and Venus. Venus gets a lot more energy, right? And so when we get to see those planets, in addition to A, of course, are they still showing signs of life? That'd be amazing because that tells you about the future possibility of Earth when it gets hotter and hotter. But also how does an Earth in the future transition to Venus? And did Venus ever have potentially the conditions for liquid water because there's new modeling because of you know the phosphorus on Venus and other things that actually is super fascinating that indicates that maybe there's a certain, <coughs> if a planet never cools down to a certain level and they assume then Venus didn't, and that doesn't mean that's true, it's just like a really interesting new research area, then you would never get an ocean and then you will always have just water in the atmosphere because in the beginning it's hot because things actually collide, right? And then if you never get cool enough to form this first ocean, you just lose the water like this and it's it, right? You have two paths in these new models that might be right or wrong that say, okay, a rocky planet can be like super hot immediately or it forms an ocean and then it becomes like an earth and then we don't know what's happening later. But this is because of all the new things we find, and I'm sure also because of phosphate on Venus, and also because of these planets we find. And that's a completely new area of research that would have never gotten to because we didn't have any data that we could compare these models to. And sometimes I think we shelf things up to the point where we have new data to actually tell us yes or no on some of these cases. And so, I think learning about how rocky planets work in the first place, going back to how our rock records becomes uh, more debatable the further you go back in time, is also, to me, an amazing part of this search for life. So even if people are not caring about life in the universe, caring about how our rocky planets work and how the future of the Earth should potentially work is actually, I think, a really cool part of this journey. Yeah. I think we should maybe... Yeah, but I would like to open it up for a question. But also, but just before we do, if, for any of you, since you know, we, we covered a lot of ground, we can't do everything, <laughs> but if, if any of you have, if there's something we just haven't said or that it's a, a topic or an yeah, aspect I, that we haven't commented these on... These guys have been very patient. I'd say one thing. Um, so I, I'm not sure what life is. I, we have this concept of biological activity and all this sort of thing, um, which clearly interacts with chemistry and physics, right? Um, if you look at the history of science, we it was actually largely due to astronomy that we figured out that um, gravity works outside the solar system, outside the planet, and beyond. Um, and then we learned that chemistry works pretty much exactly the same way it does here um, through astronomy universally. What we do not know is whether there's anything universal about biology, whether DNA has any meaning in another environment, 
whether there's another mechanism to have activity that, um, you know, metabolizes things. Um, and certainly you could claim that computers metabolize things. Um, so the, the concept of life, I think, is a very deep question, but that is remains the one area of science we have no concept of whether it is at all universal in the sense that we have it here. And we all say we know life when we see it. You see a worm wriggling around, you say it's alive, right? But if you saw, you know, a river wriggling around in a funny way on a planet, would you think that's alive? I don't know. So yeah, that's a that's a very good a good <laughs> reminder. It's salutary to just have that yeah. perspective on the biology of this, yeah. with all these incredible astronomical experiments underway and planned. But yes, let's let's hear from our. The goal people are pursuing is to find the kind of life that you understand that yes. is life. Yeah, yeah. And that would be good enough. We, I, I, we oh, don't need to be, find I weird think biology. I one of the most fundamental yes. discoveries in history of people. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, it, it would be. There's no question. <laughs> if anyone wants to come up to the microphone here sure. and ask a question, and while you're thinking about that, I'll, I want to pose one question. Going back to the panspermia, the concern about panspermia as being an explanation for why We've, if we find something on Mars or Venus, that that could be the explanation. Um, I'm, I'm a little bit, I don't know enough about this, and that's why I'm asking you also. But aren't the folks who think that panspermia accounts for life on Earth? Well, you could flip it around, right? You could say that yeah. life started on Mars right. and potentially arrived on Earth. That's possible. Right. Yeah. I think it's just way cooler to be a Martian. Yeah, <laughs> I think I totally agree with that. And it, and it goes much <laughs> easier that way. Because yeah. Mars you're going through the gravity is well. pulling yeah. you in, Mars is less. Right. Venus has got a thick atmosphere, is more massive, and you're heading outward. So I think that the rates are very different between those two paths. I'm wondering though how different we you were explaining earlier, David, that you know things would have to look quite different for us to think that panspermia doesn't explain it. But how different? Because you know, even if the, the let's say there's something like DNA but not DNA, you could say that was part of prebiotic evolution, and you know there was because a common source and then they, we split apart. I mean. I'm not sure you'd it's be a, able to say. It's a great question. I, yeah. I don't know the answer yeah, to I mean, it. You, it yeah. you could have panspermia create all the life in the solar system, right? And it came from outside. And then you've got four billion years of evolution yeah. where <laughs> you make up your own adventure, right? It could happen. But, but, but can, yeah. I, can, I, can I just point on this? And I, I completely agree that this is the, 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 the idea, right, from outside. Sorry, I'm just like drawing the line at outside because you have to hit this thing. Well, and there's yeah. a lot of space between stars. Remember, like the cookie, and then you have two football fields to the next star. Oh, so, so, you're, so you're jumping to panspermia. No, that's what we're saying. It could be from no, outside. Within, right? within that's the what we just system. said. Yeah. And I think oh, yeah. there's the problem. You have to think about the volume. Hmm. And we have such troubles getting our missions to the next planet over in this cookie, right? So it's not a slam dunk that you're going right. to hit the planet if this one is like no, 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 football yeah. fields away. So, so inside the solar system, trying to transfer me That wasn't the point I was easier. trying to make. Well, okay. What I was Go. trying to say was that no matter where this crap comes from, it has to originate somewhere, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> this, the complex chemistry exactly. and physics of our bodies, which we describe as biology or Which light. includes crap, by the way. Yes, yeah, well, quite a lot of it. <laughs> and cockroaches. Yes. <laughs> it has to have grown up come about somewhere, um, you know, unless you don't believe in the Big Bang and we've been here for, in, you know, the universe is infinitely long in time it's and still space. it has to start, <laughs> but then still it has to start somewhere. Sorry. Not if time is infinite. 
<laughs> so we we have a number. Oh my goodness! <laughs> there are a lot of questions from uh, our online audience. Um, okay, let me ask this one first. I, I don't think we'll be able to get through them all. And there's actually one with a graph. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. The graph is a uh, an account of the responses okay. to the original. Okay, that's what that oh. was. I thought someone embedded some tables and said, Could you "Please respond well, to us." These are high-level questions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So this is from Laura Sanya. Uh, since the James Webb telescope only detects infrared light, why doesn't it act as a filter blocking out most of the stellar spectrum, thus allowing us to see exoplanets around brighter stars? It's not able to block yeah. out light. It can block out light, but not enough for planets. Instead, as we've tried to explain, it uses a technique where the planet goes in front of the star, yeah. and some of the starlight shines through the atmosphere. So all that blocking is happening already before the light gets to the telescope. No, no, no. I, I think the question is is not is slightly different. There, there are coronagraphs on the James Webb Telescope, and uh, whoever made this point makes a very good one that um, many mo many stars are actually fainter in the infrared than they are. Um, then the uh, planets actually tend to emit more light in the infrared than they do in the optical. And so the contrast between your star, especially a sun-like star, and something like a Jupiter is much smaller. It's much easier for you to block the light of that star out so you can see the, the planet itself. Which but is not true for MDORs, which tend to peak in infrared. Well, which around one micron. So well, let's not get too technical. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's still true with MDORs. <laughs> I, I think another way to answer this question is like, uh, going back to what Chris said, when we made the James Webb Space Telescope, exoplanets were not known yet. Nobody knew about it. So the James Webb Space Telescope was not designed yeah. to have anything on board that could block out the star to the level that we could see a planet around it. We just didn't have the time because we didn't know they were there. And so there is some of it on it, but not good enough to find like an, a planet and characterize it with the James Webb by blocking out the stellar light. Well, we'll see. <laughs> okay, we'll see. For the big ones, it probably will work. I have to mention that the people who've, who've sent in some questions all seem to have names that a Klingon might have. <laughs> um, whether that has something to do with it. Anyway, well, that's... Well, well, the, the question's been answered then. Yeah, so exactly. I'll leave us alone. Kapla to all of us. All right. That, that, that question I was corrected by Alex, our coordinator, was from Loreziana. Um, Optimuse Prime. Optimuse Prime. <laughs> Yes, that's the name of the questioner. Um, as it's impossible to know for sure that life doesn't exist, if in fact it doesn't, uh, do you think we'll ever give up on the search for life after a very, 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 very long time <laughs> if we don't find anything in that time? Never. I actually we're commented on I'll that. I'll just say we never. We're never giving up. I mean, think about yeah. Mars. We talked about the Viking experiments. Yeah. People are going to just keep searching. Or think There's, of Orsetti. Yeah. I mean, Jill yeah. Tarter. Never Gosh, she's up. a trooper. She's six, only, 60 years, you know, in big silence. Yeah. Keep and doing then, it. It's and getting better. There's only one answer to this question, and it's yes, it's out there. If you say no, you, you, you Well, I think you part of the answer to the question no is, ever, right? <laughs> is in this field that's so much driven by technology and instrumentation. As long as you're doing better and better experiments, yes, yes. Yeah. Don't beat your head against the wall. But we're, <laughs> yes. we're getting the incredible tools to do this. And that maybe at some point, if you plateau out and the public turns its back on funding science and so no fancy toys for astronomers, 
Well I, well, I think that also explains why, you know, all of you expressed, I think, a healthy sort of scientific skepticism, which is absolutely appropriate in a situation like this. But David, you said, especially emphasized that early on. And I'm thinking, our entire talk is about looking for life, right? I mean, hmm. there seems to be, and there's a lot of money being uh, spent on this effort, right? People really have a strong bias in favor of the answer becoming oh. ultimately yes. That doesn't mean we can't be skeptics at the same time, right? I think must be, agree. I think. Yeah. yeah. But I think in a way we are in a better position than people before us were because it could have turned out that only one in 50,000 stars harbors a planet. And Kepler showed us that that's not true, right? So every fifth one has a potential small right distance, right? And now the question is, is it interesting enough to now that you found these in these places that could be potential Earth to go investigate, right? That's basically at the line where we are. Mm -hmm. And then the next question is, if we don't find nothing, what does that mean? And the problem is that if you look at life on the Earth, first paper, <laughs> uh, for about two billion years, it doesn't leave signs in the atmosphere that are not also easily explainable by geology. It does, it makes CO2, it makes CH4, methane and CO2, right? It's bacteria that does it, but when you see it from remote, you won't be able to tell the difference. And so, there we go back to Carl Sagan, extraordinary discoveries need extraordinary evidence. This is why we being very conservative in a way, that's what we started out on, right? That we not just, we, we are looking for everything, absolutely, everything we can't explain. But to say that we found something that indicates life, we have to have no other explanation than there is life. And this is where your question goes back to, when do you stop? You now have these amazing places that could potentially be like the Earth, so much to learn. Do you now say, ah, oh, I found the place where I could go and look, I'll go home and do something else? Or do you say, onwards? It's just the, you know, the difficulty of interpreting a null result. Michelson Morley was a null result, but it <coughs> changed physics forever. The null result in this field, mm. it's really hard to put your yeah. arms around that. I'm not, I'm not sure I take it for granted as much that we'll always continue. Uh, just that we've seen it with SETI. Funding, federal funding was cut mm. from SETI. They didn't stop people from doing it, though. They still kept doing it, but I don't think we should um, take it for granted that we will always be able to build these That's large experiments. That's a different question, you know, is will people keep funding it versus mm -hmm. will people keep looking? It takes a lot of effort from science communicators and events like this to try and uh, be transparent about what is happening in the field and try and convince people why it's exciting. But it, it's not impossible. There's been dark ages in our history where science went the opposite direction. It's not impossible that we would give up on such things, or at least uh, the, the resources were no longer available to do that kind of work. Just as we congregated the group of us before the, we started the panel, you had mentioned that the number of students enrolling in astronomy has been really going mm. up. Yeah. And do you think that's related to this issue in some way? Or I thought that, and then I looked at our grad admission, the people who actually apply to grad school at Columbia, and, and the fraction of people who want to do exoplanets is still quite small. So there's the, you know, there's, we had like 350 applications for five places last year, which is just crazy. Um, and of those, you know, there's 250 or something who want to do galaxies, cosmology, or stellar physics. So you can't, I mean, maybe they were inspired at some point from exoplanets, I don't know, but there's a, lot of, there's a lot of young people who are interested in lots of other questions in astronomy besides from life. 
And so I, so I, I yeah, think I would. expanded the sample. What do you see yeah, at I think MIT and Cornell? By expanding the sample, like we did the same grant admission at Cornell, and at Cornell, uh, it, it just like my my colleagues are not very happy with me. <laughs> they were like, everyone wants to do exoplanet. Stop <laughs> doing the Carl Sagan Institute outreach, right? We want the other people to come to Cornell as well. What is fine, right? As David was saying. There's a lot of interest in the in, in the young people, and that's what it should be. They, they should be interested in everything. And then I think you get a bit of a fluctuation. On one year, you get a, a very exoplanet-heavy thing. We, we did, like, if you would have asked me instead of David, I would have said, yes, ours is, like, blown over with mm. the James Webb, and we have people who are in the James Webb instrument teams that have had some press releases and so on. So I think this is maybe why we had... Uh, quite a few people being interested. So I would have said, yes, it's crazy. But I think it's really good that David brought this up too. It's it's not always, right? I think it's nicely distributed, but I think a lot of people that I know who would not have considered astronomy and physics are considering it because planets and the diversity of what you need to know, biology, biology chemistry, geology, uh, astronomy, it appeals to them from wide range. Somebody who, who said, I want to know if there's life in the universe can come from it to it from a biology, from a geophysics background. For example, right now I have two postdocs in my lab that are geophysicists and one postdoc who's a microbiologist. That's we're sitting together and we're discussing planets, right? It's a wider range of interest that exoplanets could potentially help you cover than, for example, black holes. And what what uh, we should remind everyone is that this is core astronomy expertise, but astrobiology is a sort of renaissance subject because it's very interdisciplinary. And the NASA, uh, the AbSciCon meetings every two years uh, resisted doing parallel sessions. They made everyone from their discipline, geophysicist, astronomer, chemist, biologist, speak to all the other disciplines and, you know, and bring everyone along. And that's a, that's a, that's a rare thing now in science at mm -hmm. all to be that way, just to, to keep trying to do that. So it's one of the little niches of astronomy, if you like, that subfields that is, uh, you know, holds to this standard of interdisciplinarity because it's the stuff you don't know from that adjacent field, you know, mm -hmm. from the geologist telling you how much free oxygen you might get in a planetary atmosphere. Oh, really? Six, eight percent? <laughs> That's a little scary. Um, whatever. So whatever it might be. So, so we have uh, the results of their online oh, yeah. uh, okay. uh, uh, questionnaire. And I think, it, uh, of course, it's a, it's a little bit of a biased sampling because these are people who are strongly interested in the topic. But as far as, and I think this comes close to what I observed. Oh, I got another message. Forgive me. Um, what I observed uh, here when people raise their hands, uh, with their cards here. Uh, the existence of some form of life beyond Earth is almost certain was 52.2%. Um, very unlikely, it looks like it's about 6%. Um, the next question, uh, the existence of intelligent life on Earth, it dropped to 35%, said almost certain. 26.1 said very likely, and 26.1 also said likely. And then lastly, what would the news be like, right? Mm -hmm. And 52% said the scientific discovery of the century. That's so, right. Yeah. That's, that's uh, <laughs> go tell that to Congress. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's part of this enthusiasm yeah. we're no, talking no, about in general. Yeah.
So we, it's our time. We're wrapping up, right? I think, I okay. think that's it. I want to thank everyone for a spectacular uh, uh, roundtable <laughs> and um, thank the audience for their attention. Thank you. Thank you.